Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour from Food FM with me, David Kermode. Episode 67, and this week it's gin. The boom in sales of this most British of spirits has been the stuff of legend. Self-confessed gin nerd Olivier Ward, editor of Spirits Beacon, a member of the IWSC's Spirits Judging Committee and a regular face on Channel 4's Sunday Brunch, joins us to tell us more. Plus, later on, we'll bring you a selection of top medal-winning gins from the IWSC Hall of Fame. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. So much has been written about the gin boom, and experience tells us, of course, that boom is followed by bust. Well, most of the time anyway. Yet, is there any sign of that happening to sales of gin? Scarcely a week goes by without at least one new gin popping up in my own inbox, uh, and I'm primarily a wine writer. So God knows what the inbox of Olivier Ward looks like a self-confessed gin nerd. His experience means he's a member of the IWSC's Senior Spirits Judging Committee. Uh, Indeed, he won the prestigious IWSC Spirits Communicator of the Year uh, a few years back, back in uh, 2017, I think. And he's Channel 4's resident gin expert on Sunday Brunch, as well as editor of Spirits Beacon, And Olivier is with us now, I'm delighted to say. Uh, Olivier, thanks very much for joining us on The Drinking Hour. It's a pleasure to be here. Always uh, always happy to talk with you and uh, especially to talk about gin. Well, yeah, it's it's really your thing. So the gin nerd, um, you describe yourself as that. Otherwise, it could sound... A little yeah, bit no, I, 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 I absolutely <laughs> do. I absolutely do, and it, it really, it's, it's not, it's not just something that I'm uh, keen on. It's, 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 it's more than a passion. It is borderline obsessional, and, and has been for over a decade. I, I absolutely love the stuff, and I, and I would point out not just on a drinking level. I, I, I also love the industry around it, and, uh, and those involved. Um, it, it's, it's been, it's been a, yeah, an, an all-encompassing passion for a long time. Yeah, so. Um, what spiked this interest in the first place? How did you become a gin nerd? Um, you know, it, 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 as with many stories, I think in the um, wine and spirits industry, it, it's one of those where I, I think I fell into it um, bizarrely. But then in, in retrospect, you kind of see these sort of milestone moments. I, I, I discovered uh, from an adult perspective, I discovered gin um when I started working on Hendrix, I sort of finished university and I started working on um, building experiential design, uh, sort of immersive experiences, uh, products, that kind of stuff. And uh, one of the clients at the time was um, was Hendrix. And my journey then really started there, uh, both in the category and within spirits. And then I ended up working on Hendrix for, for many, many years. And uh, it was, um, and this is at the time, this is not 2008, 2009, something like that. So really, a long time ago and and back then you know it just it just wasn't what it is today it was like 
really you want to you want to work in gin you find gin interesting it's like yeah it's it's really fascinating and um and the, the more especially back then as well like to do what the the job that i had essentially which was to design points of difference immersive experiences brand identity you know brand positioning etc cetera, etc cetera. um you really had to find out well what made this different to the others you had to go beyond flavor right to be good at it you have to go like i can't just present oh this is a different flavor you have to present well this is made in a different way or maybe this is made in a different place or you know all by different people and and, and all of a sudden that that opened my eyes to the fact that look if you put flavor aside for a minute and just looked at the other areas that gin touches on the people the place the process it is endlessly fascinating and and just from that moment i was I was just entirely hooked. That, there, there was no going back. That was it. Was it for me? That was it. Yeah, hooked on gin in a good way. We should say, not uh, in a kind of yeah bus shelter way. <laughs> but uh, um, it's. Uh, uh, I mean, I, you touched on something there that I was really keen to pick up on because um, I think I'm a bit older than you. Uh, when I was first um, kind of getting into um, uh, alcohol um, in, I guess, the early 1990s. Back then, I think, as far as I can remember, gin was something that was a little bit more associated with old ladies at six o'clock in the evening uh, for their G&T um, than it was cool kind of younger people. And actually, if you went to buy gin, it would be, you know, Gordon's or Beefeater, um, perhaps two or three brands in the shop, maybe not more than that. Uh, definitely not more than that. And and, and you're absolutely right. I, I mean, I remember the first, I mean, even talking all the way up to 2012, probably 2014, uh, you know, that perception was still changing. And that's a good decade into uh, uh, essentially this revolution or this new gin renaissance, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know certainly that yeah the 1990s were were very few brands on shelf a very uh, strong perception of uh, older person probably female um in terms of the drinking demographic and, and, and type of individual and and very uh, entrenched brands right in terms of as you say the gordons the beef eater um even bombay was bombay sapphire was new if you think about it that's only in 1980s you know onwards so um wow. it's, it's not it's not even people think it's been there for a long long time it has in the modern context but you know 90s noughties it it was really the start of something and and these mega brands that changed everything right and and it wasn't people associated with this really new thing but it actually a lot of the big brands that changed the um the momentum started the momentum and changed things uh were born in 2001 2003 so you, you know you're looking at tanqueray 10 you're looking at hendrix you're looking at beefy to 24 these the sort of the, these big brands that had their mainstay flagship for a while and and they were premiumizing with these different sort of premium editions these premium expressions and um and that that started that started to to shift things but it took a decade of them pumping in a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of very clever marketing um, to even make an impact. And um, so it wasn't it wasn't an overnight thing. And you can really see the see the start of it. But as you, you, and even all the way up to 2012, you go to most pubs and bars, there's still only four or five on the back bar. I was pondering this as I was doing my uh, research, because I know you, you've written about this in in your book, um, uh, the story of of kind of uh, how this uh, gin boom uh, renaissance is a, a nicer word actually uh, because of course gin has been around for so long um, how it began w was it that then was it these sort of what we consider um, sort of uh, m quite big brands but innovative brands rather than 
artisanal producers is that is that how it kicked off i uh, yeah and I, th- I think it's a combination right so i, th- I think it's it you you have you have to acknowledge the circumstance that um that, that went into it so um a renewed interest in regionality and locality within the food and drinks scene overall um that that was definitely a factor a trend playing out um locavores as it was called at the time um but the um you, you've then also got the, this renewal of craft cocktails and i think that that definitely made a a bit of an impact and i'm sure sure we'll talk about it more over uh, over the next bit but the um i remember sipsmith at the time and they were in this garage in in in, uh, hammersmith and it was all it was it was a really small dingy it was quite small it was a garage i remember this really dingy couch at the back as well and it was just it, it was really early days of craft distilling in the uk but for them in particular and the guys were very very open and saying look there really wouldn't be a sipsmith without Hendrix, there wouldn't be a Hendrix without Tanqueray, there wouldn't be a Tanqueray like, you know, without Bombay, you kind of build on, you build on what's been before you and, and those who have been before you. And, and those big brands changed a lot. And, and the reason they changed a lot wasn't just in terms of building awareness and uh, engaging with a lot of this new generation of bartenders who were coming through at the time. It, it was also because they were ready to show that actually um, you could have much more contemporary flavor profiles. So if you just think about Tanqueray 10 for a second, it's super citrusy. And that was quite a departure, quite a radical departure on the gins that, you know, had been known for, you know, a century before that. This idea of fresh fruit in, in you know, in, in the distillation, that was that was weird. Um, and same thing again with Hendrix and their Cucumber and Rose. And, and the same thing with, you know, Martin Miller's um, and some of these quite contemporary flavour profiles that were making gin accessible to a new consumer. And that all started with the big brands. So saying that it was just the craft producers that created this boom is completely false because there was a lot of circumstantial uh, circumstantial factors going into it. And and that groundwork that had been done up to that point was fantastic. But there is no doubt that as soon as craft distilling hits as a concept, especially in the UK, it is not one plus one and then this thing happened. It is a multiplier effect. It's 10 times 10 and it just exploded as a result of it. But yeah, th- so it's... Depends on which era you look at, but that first 15 years is very much a story of the big brands and uh, making it cool again, I suppose. Mm, That's really interesting. And I remember um, some years ago when I um, discovered that Bombay Sapphire was not 100 years old. You know, it was created, of course, very cleverly in that beautiful blue bottle. Um, There's a picture of Queen Victoria on there, I think, as I as I recall. Um, Another one is Hendrix. Again, I love that gin, but I had assumed that had been around for 100 years or something. And and then you discover that it was a, a very smart uh, kind of new brand, effectively, you know, uh, 20 odd years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, they were really, really clever with the creation of these kind of heritage looking brands, weren't they? Yeah. And, and it's, you know, and, and it, yes, it, for both of them, super clever in terms of how they um, they brought it to life, but for, almost for different reasons, you know, so like Bombay, when you think it's in the 80s, right? So what they were doing was uh, showing that gin could be premium. And that was that in itself is revolutionary and that sounds so basic now but mm. at the time they were like you know what you would pay a pre for a premium gin that's crazy talk given it was you know gordon's and bombay right uh, sorry gordon's and um beef eater and so they, they really showed that the category could be premiumized 
and that set of training of events within the big you know multinationals to go well actually there's an opportunity there can you just see how they're doing it and that if we were to go not premiumize gordons but maybe create a different expression or premiumized Tancre, you know, let's create something different, i.e. Tancre 10 or Beef Eater 24. And there were multiple attempts before Beef Eater 24, I should point out. You know, there was uh, the good old Crown Jewel for a while. Uh, Beef Eater Crown Jewels was for a while, but it, it just didn't work. It didn't connect. So, so you know, Bombay set the showed by example, actually, yes, you can create this brand that people can identify with and are familiar with this heritage looking thing and also be premium at the same time. So it's almost like familiar, same, same, but different. And, and Hendrix took a quite a different, like, different approach to it because, you know, they, they were created 1999, uh, first released on the US market, not the UK in 2001. UK was in 2003. Um, but if you actually just think about this concept of um, dual distillation, right? So Hendrix is made in uh, you know, in, in, in two different pot stills, in two different stills, one's vapor infusion, one's pot, and they've got these two distillates, uh, cucumber and rose. So it's dual distillation that is blended together with these sort of uh, extracts that are added on top to make it. That exact same concept had already been done in Martin Miller's 1998, right? So a year before on the market, dual distillation with a cucumber extract, except they didn't really speak about it. In Martin Miller's, what they did was going, okay, well, we're in a vodka era, the 90s, End of the end of the nineties vodka career. Let's make something that's familiar to vodka drinkers, but then might bring them into gin. So a very citrus forward gin that would appeal to those who like a lighter set. And Hendrix, and it, and it worked for a while, but it hasn't really transcended. And the reason that Hendrix, with almost a very very similar concept at a very similar time, they didn't go. Let's how do we appeal to vodka drinkers in a tall bottle or with that kind of talk about purity of water? Let's give them something completely different, or at least that's perceived in a completely different way. That's actually not that different at all. That was groundbreaking as well. Like, I, and I, I'd certainly remember at the time, and, and Leslie, who's their master distiller, talks about it a lot. There was a lot of people within William Grant and within the distilling team that, that absolutely hated that bottle. Uh, you know, that it's apothecary brands, small bottle. They were like, that's never gonna work. People are never gonna go on it. And, and the end decision was very much like, look, people are bored of these sort of tall, long bottles and chat about purity of water and triple distillation and stuff like that. Um, let's let's revolutionize and give them something completely different to connect to. That was a really big gamble at the time and, uh, and a very mixed um, mixed team opinion about it. And, um, and it was the right gamble, uh, as you can see, not just in terms of the success of that brand, but the direct comparison that you can have between something like Martin Miller's and Hendrix, which are not that dissimilar as concepts then obviously over 20 years they've separated a little bit and and found their niches in their different zones so that, mm. that kind of just, yeah so it, it wasn't just clever on from a yeah it's clever on a branding level but also clever on sort of how they were interpreting the market as a whole and 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 the way that they were they were going to be perceived in both the short and the long run that's really interesting because I've never thought about it in that context. I love uh, the Martin Miller gins and uh, I've never really thought about that sort of um, that, that kind of vodka kind of marketing. But of course, it makes sense. Everything you're talking about, the the Icelandic water and the, the, the bottle style. And then I adore that Hendrix um, apothecary sort of Keels style um, mm. bottle. It's amazing. It's extraordinary to think they were uh, concerned about that or some people were at the, at the outset, but I'm glad they um, uh, that they, they pushed ahead because uh, it really was, um, you know, a, 
um, a groundbreaking uh, design. So that that's really interesting. I suppose for those um, who love gin but don't necessarily know what it is, um, we should uh, kind of explain. So what, have you got a sort of potted um, uh, description of how gin is made that you use when you're talking uh, to, to fellow uh, gin enthusiasts? Um, uh, no, and, and I th I, well, I mean, certainly not anymore because um, it's, it's made in so many different ways now. I, I think the easiest way to understand it, if, if you're, uh, uh, should say, a, let's just call it a casual drinker who, who, who sort of engages with a with a topic every so often, um, you know, you, you've got to look at gin as being uh, starts off with vodka. Um, you put ingredients in it, or botanicals, so citrus, herbs, spices roots whatever you want to put into that and you redistill it so you take vodka add ingredients redistill it and in that redistillation all of those flavors and all of those uh, flavor compounds are essentially absorbed into the spirit and, and brought over into, into into the end product that that's a very um I should say basic version of, of of what actually happens but but in in essence yes it's you know, there, there's that, there's that, um, it's often used in a der derogatory way, but but it's not untrue. Uh, you know, gin is essentially flavoured vodka, um, which is slightly ironic now because uh, people go, oh, you know, it's, uh, it's supposed to, um, it, well, it, it, as I say, it's used in a derogatory way. But um, it, it, in principle, in terms of a process, yes, it is. The key difference and the key thing about gin is it must taste of juniper and juniper has to be the heart and soul of that spirit. So in all of the ingredients that you can choose, in all of the ways that you can, and there are some really weird ingredients, by the way, uh, that are going into many of the gins from seaweed through to, you know, uh, tea leaves through to um barks and wood barks and you know nuts and roots and fruits and peels and whatever you want to put in there um but you know they're all centered around one one ingredient which is juniper and that's in every single gin and, and that piney resinous sort of almost christmas tree like flavor and aroma is uh, is what all distillers build around so yes re redistilled vodka flavored vodka but predominantly flavored of juniper if that makes sense it does makes perfect sense just um, a, a minor diversion here but on that uh, very theme um if you want to go back uh to uh, the very essence of um a, a juniper based gin as in the classic gin um which i often have a yearning to do especially if i've been tasting quite a lot of different things that have those weird and wonderful ingredients you were talking about like bark and all the rest of it in there um where do you go what's the gin that does that for you so um yeah, two things about that so there are uh yeah traditional gin london dry gins are are, are where are where you you're most likely to find that type of flavor profile which is juniper, juniper forward resinous and piney but um in we, we've done quite a lot of tests over the years and i've been part of a lot of panels and a lot of um uh and, and a lot of just sort of blind tasting with uh casual drinkers and experts alike and and what's funny about gin is that for as much as the talk is always about juniper actually people associate gin as juniper plus coriander seed and coriander seed brings this almost citrus like nuttiness to to it and it's the combination of the two together that people actually associate with gin the spirit much more than they do if you just had juniper and juniper alone so if you had just juniper as a single distillate and juniper and coriander seed as a sort of as, as another put them side by side and say which is the most ginny to you uh in, in sort of 
in brackets, so to speak, um, people would always choose the juniper and coriander seed. And that's what mm. a lot of this conversation is sort of, oh, well, is, is it, you know, traditional gin is juniper forward? Yes, it is. But it's always also got citrus and spice. So there's always, there's always a flavor journey, citrus, juniper, spice, and classic gins. And that, if you, if you got that yearning for it, you're actually not just looking for one thing. You're looking for those three components in perfect harmony, citrus, juniper, spice. And cause that's what we have been ingrained through generations of these big classic household names like Gordon, like Gordon's, like Beef Eater, like Tanqueray to, to associate with gin per se. So. Mm. Yeah, that, that's I, that's I, I would say. Look, it's not just one thing, you know. And, and I think people actually who taste pure juniper distillate are often like, "What? What is that? Like, it's, it's kind of like forest floor, isn't it? Or it's kind of like piney?" But they're like, "It's not. It's not. It doesn't necessarily read or or is interpreted as gin in the same immediate way that you would have when you have the three component parts: citrus, juniper, and spice." Um, but yeah, I, I would suggest uh, Plymouth uh, Tanqueray uh, as uh, really good, really and Beef Eater as well. Uh, really good classic gins that, um, that that really carry and deliver every time. Yeah, that's interesting because the number of times I've been served a beautiful gin and tonic, I'm like, oh my god, what is that gin? Mm. And the bar person or whoever's made it a friend will say it's Beef Eater. Yeah, well, and yeah, yeah Schweppes or whatever. <laughs> It's like, and it's delicious. Um, uh, so London Dry, uh, you touched on that back then. Um, just give us uh, the terminology there. What We don't always see London Dry on a gin, do we? No, um, and, and it's a really, it, it's, a conf- it's now a confusing term. Uh, and from my perspective, it's frustrating that it's a confusing term now. Because um, London Dry is about the process in which something's distilled. It's a term that's associated with process i.e. that all of the botanicals are distilled into it, like are distilled together uh, at the same time and that nothing else is added after uh, after distillation. So if you were to add, I don't know, even in a classic way, slows, or if you were to add sugar, or if you'd add rhubarb or fruits, or even a different type of infusion, that's no longer London dry gin because you've done something to the liquid afters. London dry gin is always, is um, is there are other parts to the process and to the definition of um or the legal definition of how you can get to london dry gin but i would say that it is very much process driven the reason it's become confusing now is that over the past decade people have associated london dry with the idea of a classic flavor profile or a traditional flavor profile and Yes, many London dries were classic and traditional in terms of their flavor, but you can have a London dry gin that is super citrusy, or you could have a London dry gin that's very fruity. It's it's the way that it's distilled is the reason that you can get that term. And so it, it's become confusing that it is now both or sometimes used as product for to describe the process in which something's been made and to essentially state that we've not added sugar or anything like that. And it's also some used by some going, oh, we've got a London dry style gin. It's like, well, it's now so it's now stylistic and process. And that's quite confusing. And, and equally, um, you know, many distillers up and down the country and, and all across the world um, didn't want to put the words London dry because many drinkers assumed that that means it was made in London and it, it can be made anywhere in the world. Right. So it's because it's about process. Um, and, you know, you can be an Australian distiller making a London dry gin. 
So they started tinkering with the terms, calling it, oh, it's an Australian dry, dry gin, or it's a Cornish dry gin, or it's a Scottish dry gin. And those terms don't actually mean anything, They're, whereas London dry did and still is legally defined. And and it's become this confu- unnecessarily confusing thing. Mm, um, yes. So, you know, but but so, so now you have two schools of thought, um, London dry, i.e., uh, I'm, when I say London Dry, I actually mean classic juniper forward traditional flavors, and other people who go, oh, it's a London Dry gin, and that what they're trying to say is I've I've made it in a pot all at the same time, and I haven't added anything onto it after. A little bit murky, unfortunately. Yes, well, at least um, it's murky, but at least I understand why it's murky now, which is good. So thank you for that. What about an old Tom? Uh, because I, I I I like an old Tom, but I'm never. If I'm absolutely honest, I'm never very sure um, what it means. Yeah, and 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 again, that it's that's one of those. Um, it's, it's one of the styles of gin. So there are many styles of gin. There's one of the styles of gin that um, is defined through history. Old Tom is a botanically intense and sweetened style of gin. Um, so it, it came up in history when uh, back in back in the era when the base spirit was a bit rough. Uh, and had a lot of flavor. So people who were distilling gin uh, were putting an overabundance of botanicals in in order to mask the flavor. And they were also sweetening it in order to remove the harshness. And that style of gin became known uh, or synonymous with a with an era, sort of, as you say, Victorian Dickensian era um, in, in particular. Uh, but it was around before that. It's been around since. And so when you see Old Tom, you can expect something that's botanically intense, i.e. that's got a lot of flavor, uh, and that it's going to be sweetened in some sort of a way. Um, i.e. whether that's with sugar, literally sugar added to it afterwards, or um, botanicals that are distilled in that give the perception of sweetness. Things like licorice root, for example, like honey, for example. Um, so you can expect a big gin, basically, uh, if, it's, if it's made well. A good example of it, um, Heyman's Old Tom Gin um, is, is a good example of it, um, in that uh, they have both sweetened it by using a lot of licorice root in the distillation and a little bit of sugar afterwards Uh, and you you can get that sweetness on it um the the strange thing about it is that it's lost its relevance over over the sort of gin renaissance over the past five years in particular because um you know a lot of drinkers didn't really know what it was uh, as you've just pointed out and um a lot of uh gin brands didn't want to say that they were adding sugar because uh, it you know you would sell less when people wanted a dry gin didn't want added sugar into it and so they didn't want to kind of advertise that fact even though they were doing it they were making you know and, and what you tend to find a lot now with these fruit gins or uh, well there's now well for a while you found a lot of these fruit gins weren't just fruit infused they were fruit and sugar infused and mm. so technically could they have been called an old tom probably um because they're botanically intense and sweetened um but in doing so, you open up a conversation in in saying, "Hey, my gin's got sugar in it," and uh, a lot of marketers were recoiling in horror uh, at the thought of doing that. What do you think about these um, fruit gins? Because if you go to the supermarket, there's an abundance of them, especially in the budget retailers. Actually, I, I tend to notice, and I'm not sure um, I really want um, mango, um, hazelnut, and um, and and mocha in my my gin uh, am i just being a bit of a snob no no i think i think it's 
is difficult, right? There's uh, horses for courses uh, and they're hugely popular. Um, I, what I would say about them is that they're getting better, significantly better. Um, and uh, the reason they're getting better is that um, there is now a better understanding that gin, flavoured gin, should should be that. It should be gin that's been flavoured, not just a vodka that's got a flavouring on it, right? So the underlying base spirit needs to have some identifiable character to it and that the infusion that you've put onto it has to be complementary. So when you taste a really good rhubarb gin, you taste the rhubarb, of course, but you taste a lot of the underlying gin. And really, when they first came out, um, that really wasn't the case. And and you say in a lot of the budget retailers and a lot of brands now, uh, a lot of the good ones are a much better balance between the spirit um, and the, the gin and, and, and the fruit. I would also point out that without flavoured gin, you would not have had the numbers within the gin category that you have today full stop, as in they have by far been the the single biggest area of innovation, of growth, of sales, and uh, of awareness within gin as a category. And it, it, it's been booming for a long time. And actually dry gin, classic gin, hasn't been growing at the same rate for quite a while now. And so there's a rebalancing going on where, you know, yes, these flavored gins are becoming slightly less sweet, slightly less sugary. They're becoming more ginny in, in, in that regard. So they are becoming better. But it's taken a while to get rid of that driftwood because some of them are, are repugnant and some of them are awful. And some of them, quite frankly, are should should, should come with significant health warnings because of what they're putting into it. It's, it's the rank, you know, on, on every level. Mm. Yes, I mean I've tried a few of the rank ones, and um, and and that's rather put me off. But uh, aside from citrus, which we know works beautifully uh, with with gin, um, which fruits do work best? Do you think you touched on rhubarb there, which is a yeah. um, a fruit that I, I really love. I'm, I'm not sure I've had a rhubarb gin, but I can really imagine that working. But uh, what what other ones work really well? So the ones that are interesting to me are, I mean, so pink is not a flavor, right? So that's the first thing to get out there. Pink is not a flavor. So when you have, oh, it's a pink gin, it's like, well, well, what what, what makes it pink and why why should I care? And so that that's why rhubarb and, and a lot a lot of the red fruits like strawberry, like raspberry, are being used. Um, it's not just a color hue, but it, they also have a good flavor. So you can make great uh, infusions. So the ones that are interesting to me. Are, um, are is actually what's going on in Australia right now. Um, there's an entire subcategory of gins that are being infused with grapes, um, and whether it's Shiraz grapes, Pinot Noir grapes, all sorts of things. It's so exciting because you're getting three things that um, that, that that are uh, that are endless that give you endless amounts and layers to to to, to delve into. The first is obviously flavour. You're getting some of that Shiraz grape or some of that Pinot grape or, or or whatever it is. And that character and that essence seems to merge very nicely and very well with gin. The second is that you're getting this sense of provenance and terroir through gin, which is not a usual thing for that category to have, right? So you can get a sense of provenance through the type of ingredients that a distiller uses. But really, it's the hand of the maker that's influencing it much more than the actual land around them. Uh, and by infusing these grapes, these uh, gin distillers are, are are really bringing in a sense of the Yarra Valley or a sense of, uh, you know, uh, the Barossa, for example. Um, and so that's quite exciting because you're, you're engaging with regionality and, and different categories specifically within wine. Uh, and the third is this idea of vintage. You know, each year is literally a different vintage, as all wine lovers know, right? And 
that's not something that's true with gin. Once you've made a gin, a good distiller should be able to make it twice, three times, a hundred times, right? And so the recipe is consistent. Whereas with these grape infused gins, what you're really getting a lot of is, well, one year it's going to be excellent. And if it's excellent, there are some mind blowing, but the next year it might not be at all. So yeah, the bringing in a concept of vintage and from a, from a nerd perspective and from a fan perspective, that's really exciting. Cause if you love something, you've got to, you've really got to get involved now because it won't be the same next year. And for sure it won't be, it won't taste the same, but it actually genuinely might be completely, completely different. Um, but if it's available at all, depending on how harvests go. And so we're seeing this sort of grape versus wine, um, marriage and mm. infusion come together and that's been replicated in south africa uh, a lot of the american producers are starting to look at it um and there's there's a lot of exciting exciting prospects in the work as a result yeah uh, it reminds me i've only had one of those that you mentioned which was four pillars uh, mm. bloody shiraz gin and it was absolutely fantastic and as a wine lover i was in you know uh in heaven really um they're, they're really innovative I, I hadn't really thought about the the kind of combination of of vintage meats um you know non-vintage as 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 uh, gin has been historically so that's um really uh, interesting we've talked about some of the innovators um those names i mentioned uh, the the gordons of this world beef eater uh, tanqueray um they're, they're still very much players aren't they Oh, oh, hugely. And the, this idea that it's this uh, gin boom has, has been, oh, we might see the proliferation of all of these small gin producers up and down the country and, and, and assume that actually all of these small people are doing really well. And, and some of them are, some of them are not. But the people who are doing really, really well are the multinationals, right? And they are just, in a, they have been in astronomic growth for a decade. Um, and uh, in some ways, it's their success and currently their demise that is going to define the era uh, and the numbers around it so you know gin's been in this huge growth as you pointed out in, in, in the intro for a long time and that's largely these big multinationals that have been growing huge volume increases each year and now some of those huge multinationals are not doing so well so um, and that's just a contraction of the category, but also some of their success when it comes to flavored gins, for example, you know, it's a bit of a, a hamster wheel, uh, of innovation, uh, and, uh, what those big players like Gordon's like beef eater, um, and, uh, less so Tanqueray, they've sort of stayed out of it a bit, but what they do is they come up with four, five, six flavors a year. And one of them sticks and goes enormous, like let's just say Gordon's pink or, beef eater peach uh, and raspberry They're huge success stories but and everyone goes oh they've released this but actually what they don't see is they release three or four that i'm going to call them duds for the better for the for, for the best part they just didn't connect or they weren't well received or whatever it was and so there's this hamster wheel of turnover that's going on in these um from these mul from in flavor gin in particular from these multinationals whitley neal also a good example of it i think there's a new flavor every other day um, and some of them work, some of them don't work. And unfortunately, when they don't work or that innovation train stops, the entire gin category becomes much smaller because drinkers have been almost trained to move on to the next flavor. And so whilst those, so to answer your question in a really long-winded way, apologies, the big boys are huge players and they've done incredibly well. They're also, um, they're also most at risk because their strategy for such a long time has been to throw up the next thing, throw up the next thing, throw up the next thing. And if you have three or four duds in a row, what you tend to think from in these sort of 
uh, what these big companies tend to think is, would it be easier if we just did this in a different category that it has got the cool cachet? I, should we just make flavored rum or flavored vodka instead of cry, trying to create the next Gordon's flavored gin? And the answer is maybe, maybe not. Uh, and who am I to say one way or the other? But but that's the train of thought. And, and, and because of it, it will seem like they're going to get hammered over the next year and a year and a half because they'll fall off a cliff. But actually, really, they've just that it's because of this policy that's been entrenched for for for, a, for a, at least five six years now and so but the actual core lines um in terms of apology i was trade jargon there but um the, the core expressions um like gordon's dry gin beefy to dry gin have grown in volume uh, and have done incredibly well um over the past 10 years mm, you paint this image of the uh uh, those cartoons like Roadrunner, where they're they're laying the railway in front of the of the train, you know, uh, developing these new flavours to keep going. It's uh, um, it, it it sounds exhausting, but uh, it is right to say that, that that this gin boom has not fizzled out, has it? It it depends on your perspective. Um, so if you're looking at it from a UK only perspective, uh, it. I I I don't want to be the bearer the, the bearer of bad news, but um, the the numbers are. For this year are pretty disastrous um in terms of the overall uh decline in the category and the category numbers so overall volume uh, being sold but what i would point out is if you look past that big decline figure which is going to be double digit decline um in terms of overall numbers being sold in the uk again that's a lot of those are very specific huge name multinational brands that haven't released their next big hit or their next hit so they're not they're not you know selling as much as they did last year because they've lost that consumer that's moved on to a different flavor maybe within a different category uh, and the medium-sized producers are actually doing very well the micro producers are actually doing very well it's difficult right now it's tough right now everyone across any industry is knows about supply chain issues and all that stuff so without getting into the sort of the trade the trade trade chat of it all it's difficult but beyond, if you look beyond that huge micro, that huge minus headline, this gin boom's dead, it's now spiraling out. It, it's, yeah, maybe on pure numbers term, that's true. But if you look at the medium guys, you look at the small guys, they're, they're doing all right. And they're actually in, they're either flat or growing. Uh, and, and that's that's okay. Um, and so, but from a global perspective, yeah, there is no end to how much, how much gin can be made and consumed. Uh, it is going... Uh, bananas in uh, India right now. Uh, Asia's now got a thirst for gin, and that's growing at, uh, at just insane pace. Australia has obviously got has had this huge boom in, in side by side, and you know everyone's wait, waiting for the the second coming of the U.S. market. Uh, people forget that gin was huge in the U.S. long before it was big here uh, in the U.K. and uh, and then it kind of died down, and then you know here we are, 20, 25 years later going, well, there's a strong interest and a strong resurgence in the US market right now. So globally, it's fantastic. Small people, yeah, great. Small producers, medium producers. I think the big boys in the UK are going to have a, a very, very tough time. And from the numbers that I'm seeing, are, are already in uh, in freefall. Very interesting. So you mentioned America there. Uh, America, synonymous, of course, with cocktail culture. And they arguably some dispute it i know they they gave us that uh, that culture um how linked is the gin boom and cocktail culture oh hu hu it's hugely that i mean they're intertwined right so you, you can't you, you can't um ever suggest that the point of service for an enormous amount of people uh, is is not linked to the success or decline of a, a, a of any category um so i think you know it, it's always going to be a big a big thing however 
for as much as you can credit cocktail culture and the 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 craft the renewal of craft cocktail culture in um you know 2005 through to 2015 that sort of when it really became it came back um and and you can credit that as bringing gin with it uh, for sure it was so hugely influential in recalibrating the image of gin in uh helping people understand it in uh creating in creating awareness uh, around some of the brands what they're doing how they're doing it um and uh and in and in and in helping a new generation of drinkers rediscover the spirit there the importance can't be understated today certainly in the uk uh the bar scene and bartenders have been completely inconsequential to the story of gin for a significant period of time i would say five years you know there is no thing that there is no bartender in london for example that won't roll their eyes at you when you ask for a you know it, for a flavored gin or a pink gin they, they've hated the stuff since the beginning and yet they've adopted it because the drinkers wanted it all of the trends that are playing out in gin from a flavor perspective from a regionality from all of that kind of stuff are things that have happened elsewhere that bartenders have had to adopt because the drinkers their guests have wanted it and have demanded it in the us is very different in that it's still a lot more aligned with that early uh in the, the the embracing of local the, the you know how to present it how to serve it how to be creative with gin so in the us bartenders and co cocktail culture is hugely influential for gin in the uk it, it's it's very much not the case i was going to ask you uh, earlier on and, and now's a good point to do it when you talk about local providence and local gins and you know um I grew up on the Isle of Wight, for example, and, and, and now there's a distillery and I, I rather like the, the, the Mermaid Distillery's um, yeah, uh, products. Um, I don't know whether I'm just romantically loving them as well because they come from where I grew up. But how important uh, can um, locality, can local provenance really be? Because as I understand it, the core distillate could be made a long way away and, and could be um, completely irrelevant in terms of local ingredients, couldn't it? Yeah, it's a really good question because, you know, and, and especially something like Mermaid Gin, which which I love and I love Zav and the team and and, um, and it looks great, tastes great, um, and really enjoy drinking it. Sure, they're using, so for, and I think they're a good illustration of, of this in that, you know, they're using samphire uh, and that's their local ingredient. They're using local hops, for example. But can you really tell that they're Isle of Wight, Isle of Wight hops once they've been, you know, part of a, an ingredient list that's multiple ingredient list? Probably not. You can tell there's hops in there for sure, but not necessarily the varietal and and where and, and, and the sort of piece of terrain that they came from. Um, and same thing with you know the rock samphire that's that's you know foraged on the beaches and and, and um, you know could you really tell that that's Isle of Wight rocks, I'm fine, not somewhere else, not, not so much. So it could, um, but the, um, the, the thing about, the thing about all of these is that they, 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 if it's more than just one thing, and if it's a flavor that's, if it's been imbued into the end spirit in, with, in, in, in enough quantity, it brings in a sense of place. And so if it's a tokenistic, I've added something from my local region, of course, it doesn't make a difference as to, you know, it doesn't bring a sense of place, a sense of tower, a sense of provenance into it at all. But if you do multiple things that are true to your area, 
you know, whether it's like, okay, we're using lots of apples, lots of this, lots of that, lots of, and they're all wild and abundant around here. You really can build up this sense and this idea of, of a place through the distillate that you're making. And that, of course, you could export it to somewhere else and send it to a factory, you know, a hundred miles away and, and get it made there. But again, I would point out that a lot of the time, it's not just about ingredients that give a, you know, from a distilling perspective, it's not about just about ingredients that give you a sense of terroir, right? So, and I'm not sure if you find this in wine as much, but in certainly in whiskey, they talk about this a lot. What is terroir in whiskey? Is it the grain and where it's been literally farmed? Or is it the people, the local practices the sense of a place, the pace, the rhythm that it works at, you know, that they all have an influence. The human factor has a huge influence in us in, in bringing a sense of an idea of somewhere into a distilled spirit. And that's true with gin. You know, every single flavor that you taste in a gin, it comes from the person who makes it. There's no like alchemy of time here, right? So it's like every single flavor is a human decision. And therefore you can go, well, the, the human hand, the process, the place, the, 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 the kind of environment that they're in has had a huge influence in their creativity and in their process. I, I would urge you to think about it, not just in ingredient terms, which can yeah. amount to it, but in, in human terms too. And, and, and when you consider the, the, the maker in the hand, that's something where I actually you can't, you know, there's a different, like there's a very different, sensibility depending on the region and the individual um and that comes from the place that they're making it not just the ingredients yeah well people is incredibly key to provenance and actually what you've identified there i think i'm glad you like those gins as well by the way because that's your opinion is rather more uh, important than mine in terms of uh, critical uh, reception and i think for me those mermaid gins um, and the vodka too that they, they do convey a sense of place uh, to me um, in in my mind so that you've identified something there that i hadn't really necessarily thought about so um when we have this um, yeah, this blizzard of choice in front of us on the shelves now with gin. How should someone listening to this go about choosing a gin? Wow, uh, really difficult. Um, the um, I, the things that are really really fun right now is that um, and it is that uh, there's a feast for the eyes as well as for uh, in terms of flavors. Inevitably, you, you're going to most people pick with their eyes. That we do survey after survey after survey, going well, you know when you walk up to a bar or when you walk out to a shelf, what, what do you, are you thinking about the type of flavor that you want or are you type, thinking the type of cocktail you want? And they go, no, I'm just looking at what's in front of me and that's what's appealed. And so th- th- there's a, there's a bit of that going on. Um, so I would, uh, can you judge a book by its cover in, 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 in that regard? No, but I think that there are, the, um, there are some fantastic, there, there is a link. Uh, there is a link there somewhere between those who have, understood how to express the flavors and identity of the liquid in visual terms on their bottle so often you get a sense of what something's going to be like from the way it looks and and that's actually more and more true within gin than it has been in the past Uh, beforehand it's like well that's just another bottle let me discover what's inside you know mermaid gin is a good example it tastes 
kind of how it looks. Um, there are there are there are plenty of others that that have done that very well. I, I would I would suggest look for cues on the label. So whether you like a dry gin or not, that's the first thing. Do you like things that are sweetened or not? If you don't like them sweetened, look for the word dry written all over it. Because it'll be in big words. Look for the word dry, um, because that that's gonna that's gonna help. Um, or even London dry uh, if you want to. Um, if you uh, like uh, if you like to experiment with different flavors like oh i quite like a citrusy gin or i quite like a fruity gin or whatever i would also point out that it it might be easier to find something that's well balanced and quite classic and experiment with a garnish as opposed to the gin it's a lot cheaper <laughs> than the other way around right so if you like it's, it's if you have a classic gin you can ac- accent it through garnishing and through um through all of these things so that, that it, it's a lot easier than buying a fruity gin here and then another citrus gin and then a spicy gin and then you know a salty gin or whatever it is um and so I, I would start classic experiment with garnish once you've found your like okay i really like them citrus forward and then you're looking for that on the label and then you can go from there good advice uh, another way you can be guided of course is an award and the iwsc sponsor of, of this program um have appointed you some time ago now to the uh, the spirits judging committee how do you go about judging a gin um well with um with time and patience um firstly uh, and a little bit of care because you know they're all boozy right um and so you you got you got to be you got to be a little bit um yeah uh careful in how, how you approach it i i think of it in uh, quite specific terms uh and I, I find it quite easy to differentiate between objective critique and subjective preferences. Um, and, and everyone is going to be ruled in one way or another by their own subjectivity. I get that. But I th- with gin, it's actually quite easy to park uh, in comparison to other spirits. Because, you know, when you're tasting whiskey or brandy, you're tasting like one or one or two or well, three ingredients. It's, it's yeast, whether it's grape or whether it's barley and, and water, right? Whereas with gin, actually... You can. You, there are so many ingredients in there, so you should be able to identify them. So I, I look for boldness versus balance. I love a loud flavour, but is it in balance with everything else around it? I look for flavour sequencing. There should be a journey to a gin, citrus, juniper, spice. We talked about earlier on, but uh, and this is all the myriad of ingredients. So flavour sequencing is really important, and then flavour nuance. So can you taste more than one thing at one time, uh, and does it? You know, so instead of going citrus, juniper, spice, do you get lemon and orange, juniper, coriander, cassia, and some sort of black pepper or something like that? Can you taste two or three things? And if you can say, look, it's bold, it's balanced, there's got a great flavor sequence, and there are multiple things happening at each stage of that sequence, you've got a fantastic gin. And mm. irrespective of whether you like it or not, by the way, because you can hate the flavors involved and really dislike dislike every not dislike it but you know just for example i don't know grains of paradise and fennel seed really aren't my cup of tea but they have a place in some gins and they can be logic you know you can you can uh, appreciate for appreciate uh, appreciate it for what it is and whether it's well made or not that's the object from a judging perspective is to go is this well made as opposed to did i personally like it so and then that's that's how I approach it. And then obviously, if you're talking about IWSC and gold, gold outstanding, then it comes down to did it have an extra spark over and above, uh, over and beyond, and and that's when subjectivity comes in to to shunt left and right a little bit. But overall, yeah, you can be quite objective about it. 
it's also very easy to bugger up a good gym with a really crappy tonic, isn't it? As well. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. You can you can you can mur- you can murder a, a, a great gin. And and what I, I uh, one of the gin makers once uh, said to me, you know, it's the sign of a good gin is whether it can survive tonic. And I, he, that, that word, those words were very carefully chosen. It's um, sometimes uh, yeah, it's 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 all too easy to drown it. It's all too easy to mask it. Yeah, and and, and you can go wrong quite quickly. What is your desert island gin? Uh, I mean, so many must pass your nose, your your palate um, every day, uh, frankly, given the work you do. Uh, so um, I'm, I hate to ask you for a favourite because I'm sure it's like, you know, choosing one of your children or whatever. But um, but we have to do that, really. So if you want to, you, you're stuck on a desert island and you can only have uh, one gin, what's it going to be? Uh, yeah, it really is a difficult choice. Um, I, I, for me, just like with all other food and drink, you know, the, um, and, and with perfume as well, I should point out, so many evoke or, or are, so many flavours and aromas are evocative of a moment or a memory or a time and a place. And that that's true for me with gin. I, I find it really hard to disassociate what I'm drinking without thinking of the people, because I know the people involved who make it, or I know where it's made, or I know how. Or, and so I, I tend to link one or two things to it. And and something that I, I tend to gravitate back to personally is is the team at Tarquins, you know, and uh, uh, we've always got on incredibly well. Um, they've always been, you know, fantastic friends. We've supported each other's businesses for a long time. So on a personal level, I have a, an, an affinity towards whatever they make, irrespective of whether I'm going to like it or not, I, I will always ha- have the time of day for it. That said, I think the dry gin is excellent. And um, more specifically, their navy gin, their navy strength gin, the the Sea Dog navy gin, is is world class. It is a top five gin on any list that I could ever make, um, without doubt. For me, it not just brings back memories of time spent with them and the team, time spent on beaches in Cornwall, or watching someone tinker around with this copper pot still really not knowing what they were doing right at the beginning and now very confident distiller with a very confident team you know it brings back all of these different areas and from a flavor perspective you know it it, it is wonderful it is big zesty orange it's got fantastic resinous juniper that just whacks you around the face and then it just this lingering warmth that um just stays with you and just kind of cascades like wave after wave after wave it it's it's very hard to deny as a as a flavor alone but when you add all the other elements to it on a personal level yeah it, it is it is always my choice well let's hope your desert islands somewhere off the coast of cornwall then uh it's a good choice i i, I don't know all of their gins but i know uh, that the classic is is for, for my own palate really fantastic i shall have to sample the navy one uh as well um i could talk to you for hours uh, we can't uh, you haven't got uh, the time i'm sure and uh, and we don't uh, really have the time either so uh, we've had a, a wonderful hour um it's really fascinating talking to you i've i've learned a huge amount i'm sure everybody uh, listening will have done as well so olivier thank you very much for joining us on the drinking hour well thank you very much uh, thanks for having me on and um yeah um hopefully we'll uh, have another gin and tonic soon oh yeah please the drinking hour on food fm you're listening to the drinking hour with david kermode in association with the international wine and spirit competition using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. 
Well, as you'd uh, hope and expect, gin is the focus for our selection of medal winners from the IWSC, the Spirits Judging Process in 2022, which took place back in early March of this year. The winners announced a few weeks later. We've already featured a few of the top gins in previous editions, because as you might expect, there are quite a lot of them. Uh, but you can check all the results uh, if you search at iwsc.net. Offir Aromatic Bitters Gin from Quintessential Brands was not just a gold medal winner uh, with 98 points out of 100, but also took home the prestigious trophy uh, representing the best in show. Uh, this gin was inspired by Venice's rich spice trading history and the Italian love affair with the cascarilla bark used to create highly aromatic tonics, bitters and vermouth, uh, just the kind of things that Olivier was talking about uh, in that flavour spectrum. This is a bold, savoury-led, spiced London dry gin with balanced bitter notes. Here's how the judging panel described it. Lovely light lemon notes, slightly floral, with coriander, herbs and pepper aromas shining through on the nose. Well-balanced palate with cardamom, a soft butteriness and pepper, combining with the citrus notes, creating a well-integrated and well-made, interesting gin. Here's a novel one, uh, the Welsh whiskey company Brecon Chocolate Orange Gin. A gold medal winner with 96 points. Uh, I've actually tasted this one uh, back at Christmas and uh, it's very unusual but really enjoyed it. The judging panel, including Olivier uh, here, said, wonderfully inviting, drawing us in with aromas of rich cocoa, ripe orange and silky milk chocolate. Hints of ginger and vanilla spice come through on the palate. A masterful creation, complex and concentrated with superb definition of flavour. And I can tell you it's uh, well worth trying. Up next, a gold medal winner from New Zealand, a Wildean Coromandel spiced gin from the Coromandel Distilling Company. Uh, for those unfamiliar with the geography of New Zealand, uh, Coromandel up on the, uh, the kind of top north coast of the North Island, beautiful area. Um, a London dry gin, this, awarding it 95 points. The judges describe this as immediately captivating with a confident nose of white chocolate, violets, lavender, white blossom and ripe fruits. The refined and intriguing texture has herbal, spicy and floral elements and honey, very affable, they say. Dry as a nun gin from Distillers Republic in Latvia, uh, perhaps the name maybe lost in translation, maybe not, uh, was a gold medal winner with 95 points. Very cool label on this, featuring, as you might expect, a nun. Uh, the judging panel had this to say as they gave it their golden gong, uh, inviting aromas of green herbs, grass and juniper layered atop at one another and further magnified on the palate. Rich and creamy, it has a sweetness at its core, which makes the dry finish refreshing and moorish, an accomplished spirit with excellent complexity. And last but not least, uh, to Denmark, uh, Stonegrange Elg Gin Liquor, another cool label this, uh, and another gold medal winner. Uh, the judging panel said, beautifully created to allow the juniper to lead the aromatics. Supported by exceptional zesty and white pepper notes on the palate, the balance between sweet and dry allows the flavours to continue to develop with citrus and spice harmonising. 
And that's it for us. Enough harmony, I think. Uh, we've reached uh, the end of another edition of The Drinking Hour. My thanks to Olivier Ward for all we needed to know about gin and more. Um, hope you enjoyed that. Thanks for tuning in. You can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter. And if you'd like to follow me, um, you'd be very welcome. I'm Mr Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, in the meantime, uh, that's it. See you next time. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.